0: I was looking up various stats about Spurs so that I can confound you all with the extraordinary bit of knowledge that Danny Blanchflower's name was not Danny.
1: Don't don't ruin this, John, John. Save it, save it, save it. I will
0: do.
2: Well, of course, it is quite true that I did rechristen myself Danny in honour of Danny Blanchflower, although I know his name was Dennis, really.
1: Let's start conventionally. Okay, Paul? Are you sitting quietly? Yes. Then I'll begin. Hello, everyone. This is Colin Schindler again, welcoming you to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. And joining us today, I'm very pleased to say, is Julie Welch. Because this afternoon we're going to be talking about... The glory, glory days of Tottenham Hotspur in the 1960s, and if you wanted to choose anybody in the country who could talk for not just a minute, but probably for 90 minutes, without deviation, hesitation or repetition, (laughs) on Tottenham Hotspur in the glory days, it's probably Julie Welsh. So Julie, welcome to Football Ruined My Life.
2: Well hello Colin, that's a very, very flattering introduction, I must say, and I will try not to let you down. I will uh, play the full 90 minutes.
1: And welcome to, to John Holmes. Hello, John. Good
0: afternoon, morning, evening, middle <laughs> of the night, whenever you're listening.
1: And welcome to Paddy Barclay.
0: Hello, everybody.
1: In the early days of Channel 4, I mean, the very early days of Channel 4, there was a super series, drama series, produced by David Putnam called First Love. One of them was The Glory Glory Days, which was written by our guest, Julie Welch, and it was about her love of Tottenham Hotspur, and in particular, Danny Blanchflower. My question is, how autobiographical was that story?
2: Now, that is quite a question, because, of course, when uh, Spurs won the double, 1960-1961, I was a schoolgirl, a middle-class schoolgirl, on my way to boarding school, and despite what is shown in those glory, glory days this small girl going to football matches, that bit about it is completely untrue because I would never, ever, ever have been allowed by mummy to go to football matches. So what I did do, I just used to buy all the best papers for football, which were the tabs, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Sketch, etc., and read up about Spurs escapades in those. And of course, I came from a very posh household, and my mother would be absolutely appalled when I came home with the sketch and the mirror in my satchel. And there is actually a scene in those glory, glory days about my fictional mummy finding these dreadful journals in my bag. So a lot of it is actually true in terms of the plot.
1: What we all want to know is why Spurs, what produced that passion for Tottenham Hotspur when you weren't when you weren't going to the games and watching
2: well having always been very interested in sport anyway particularly horse racing because my father and I used to sort of have little bets on Saturdays when grandstand was on I then got into football the Manchester United air crash Munich it was all over the front pages my mother was deeply affected by it all those wonderful boys all that sort of stuff. So that immediately kind of piqued my interest in football as a kind of all-consuming news event, much more than a sport. We go on a bit further. I joined the City of London School for Girls in 1959. God, this is revealing my age.
1: It's the same age as the rest of us.
2: (laughs) My three best friends were all Jewish, because, of course, the City of London had a big North London catchment area. And these girls, their dads used to take them to watch Tottenham at White Hart Lane. And they were my three mates, my three best friends. And they were talking about Tottenham all the time. So I started to kind of look at match reports and things like that. And I have to say that the player I really fancied was Bobby Smith.
3: You liked a bit of rough.
2: I liked a bit of rough. He was Heathcliffian, this dark, swarthy Yorkshireman who used to kind of knock goalkeepers over for fun. I don't know what you think, Paddy, but he was one of the most violent players I've ever seen. Bobby Smith. He was a lovely personality. <laughs>
0: yeah, I loved him though. I, you didn't I, love him in 1961, that's for certain. Was that the year? The Frank Haffy year. Uh, yes, yes.
2: But it didn't. wasn't. It wasn't Bobby who knocked into Les Thomas, It was Les Allen. If we're talking It was less Alan. that's
0: absolutely right, yeah.
2: Can
1: we explain to listeners that we're talking now about the 1961 FA
2: Cup final between
1: Leicester City and Tottenham Hotspur. Tottenham Hotspur had won the league many weeks ago, I think, and basically all they had left to complete the double, which had not been done since 1897, they had to beat Leicester City in the Cup final. And John still carries the marks, the scars of that Cup final, don't you? My know?
0: first visit to Wembley. Nineteen sixty-one, we were the first side that year to beat Spurs at White Hart Lane, beat them three-two. Not many weeks before, Spurs were supposedly all-conquering. Danny Blanchflower's advertising shredded wheat. They were singing "Glory, Glory, Hallelujah" all over the place, and of course, the London Press dismissed Leicester's chances completely, even though we're actually not a bad side. Actually, that year we finished sixth, and so on. And you
2: had Gordon Banks in goal.
0: We had Gordon Banks in goal. And in the 18th minute, Les Allen kicked Len Chalmers all over the shop, got him injured, and he spent the rest of the game hobbling on the wing. The Wembley Hoodoo, it was called in those days. Spurs scored in about the 153rd minute or something after Leicester were knackered. I don't resent it,
2: Julie. I can see that, John.
1: I think we ought to explain also to the listeners that there were no substitutes in the 1961 Cup final. Well, didn't start until 1965. So if you were injured at Wembley, that was it. You were down to 10 men. But There were
3: a series, I think it was something like three years out of four, teams were either down to 10 men, as in the case of Nottingham Forest against Luton, when Elton John's uncle, was it?
2: Yep. Roy Dwight.
3: Yeah. And Roy Dwight couldn't complete the game because he'd broken a leg. Then Chalmers was a passenger Dave Whelan played for Blackburn. Dave Whelan, later the owner and backer of Wigan through their greatest years, he, during the Blackburn-Wolves game, he broke a leg as well.
1: Jimmy Meadows, 1955, FA Cup final, Manchester City down to 10 men against Newcastle. 1956, Bert Troutman broke his leg.
3: And they would have been down to 10 men had uh, Troutman been correctly diagnosed with a broken neck.
0: (laughs) And I think Wally Barnes was also 52. taken off as well for Arsenal. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But, I mean,
1: are we going to talk about this first double team now? or, or... We are, but we, we should start by asking Julie, do you remember, I mean, it was the culmination of about two years where they were getting significantly better. And it really started when Bill Nicholson became manager in the late 1950s.
2: In fact, it's a longer build-up than that, I think, because it started when Arthur Rowe, who managed to push and run team, managed to sign Danny Blanchflower towards the mid-50s from Aston Villa. But, of course, Arthur Rowe's days weren't going to be long at Spurs because he had a crack-up, and the team was taken over by one Jimmy Anderson, who was a kind of director's stooge. He was known as the man in plus fours. He was a very good office politician. He kind of rose without trace. In the meantime, though, Bill Nicholson, who played on the right behind Alf Ramsey, Bill and Alf Ramsey did not get on. They were complete rivals and both wanted to go into coaching. And so what Bill did, he sort of preempted Alf. He went to Arthur Rowe and said, you know, I think I should retire now because, you know, my legs have gone. Can you put me on the coaching staff? So, Arthur O'Roe obligingly did, which didn't leave room for Alf Ramsey when Alf retired a year later, which is why Alf Ramsey went off subsequently and eventually to manage Ipswich Town. There was a series of signings. Morris Norman, who was known as the Norfolk Swede, was brought in as centre back. It's a sort of lovely giant bloke, and he is one of the double winning side who is still with us. Bill just went on this wonderful buying spree, basically, for the last few years of the 1950s. Blanche looked as though he was on his last legs at the age of 33, but then Bill brought in Dave Mackay from Hearts. was it? Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I had a senior moment then. I suddenly thought, it wasn't Hibbs, was it? Yeah, so Dave Mackay came in and, of course, Danny and Dave struck up this brilliant partnership. The wonderful, wonderful Cliff Jones arrived from Swansea. Then the player who's very close to my heart, the ghost of White Hart Lane, John White, arrived from Falkirk. By 1959-60, that season, Spurs had four arguably world-class players. And in fact, I think, The late, great David Lacey once wrote a piece in The Guardian about the most beautiful teams of the 20th century, and he named Spurs' 1959-60 team, which actually only finished third in the table, as one of the most beautiful sides.
1: In fact, that was my first visit to White Hart Lane, because I'd come down (coughs) to London for, for the Easter holidays. And on Easter Saturday, Manchester City were playing at White Hart Lane. It was an extraordinary game because Spurs were so dominant. They were all over us for 89 minutes. In the 45th minute of the first half, they got a penalty. I don't know if you know this story, but Cliff Jones took it, as he always did and always scored. He didn't score, but Troutman went the right way, saved it, but the ball rebounded from Troutman and Jones put it in the net. And then the whistle blew for half-time. Nobody said anything over the loudspeakers or anything. You just got a sense of the crowd Talking among themselves, saying that goal doesn't count. The time was extended to allow the penalty to be taken. The moment the penalty was taken and saved, the half finished. So by the time he put the ball in the net, it was half time. It didn't count. So it was nil-nil at half time. And Spurs came out and ran rings round us again, piled on the agony, and then in the 85th minute, there's one breakaway movement. Ten Spurs players are in in the City half. Billy McAdams scores a goal, and that's the end of the game. Tottenham Hotspur, brilliant, nil. Manchester City, hopelessly outclassed,
2: one. We have subsequently had our revenge, and I will point you to the 1981 FA Cup final. Yes, we will get we there, Julie, yes. Julie, tell us, what was your first
1: game? And given the fact that you knew so much about the side going into it, which I think, as far as you were Paddy and John and I were concerned. We didn't know much about it before we started going to the games. But you knew quite a lot before going in. So did the game itself, the first game, whichever it was, was that what
2: you were expecting? Actually, later on in the 60s, Ron Greenwood, the manager of West Ham at the time, moved into a house about three, four houses away from us in our street and immediately, of course, became everybody's top cocktail party guest and all that. I think it was Boxing Day. I can remember I used to sort of sidle up to Ron Greenwood and say how much I loved football, and I'd always get these sort of tickets to go to Upton Park, which was really nice. I mean, I, I have to say I did enjoy West Ham, but it was definitely a Ron Greenwood present. And Spurs were absolutely fantastic. I mean, they won about 5-1 or something like that. It was an absolutely classic Jimmy Greaves performance. I know people, most normal people, people like you, I'm sure, can remember their first match. Absolutely. But I actually do have to look it up because I've been to so many matches at White Hart Lane. And I used to sit in the old West Stand, those wonderful wooden floors and the smell of sort of cigars and cashmere overcoats and, and you know, the cue <laughs> for the tea. But it was lovely. And I, I always seem to end up sitting next to this lady who had boiled sweets and she used to share her sweets with me. But what I do remember is the absolute brilliance of Jimmy Greave, who, of course, going back to the double side, 1961-62 season, early on in the season, not in the transfer window, Jimmy had left Chelsea where he was the 17-year-old wonder kid. He'd signed for Milan because he thought he'd make more money there. And then, of course, Jimmy Hill got the maximum wage lifted. And Jimmy Greaves suddenly realised that he would make pots of money back in England. So he tried to get out of his Milan contract but couldn't. So he had a very unhappy spell at Milan. And it was all getting fixed up for him to go back to Chelsea And Bill Nicholson got wind of it. And I think the sort of tapping up conversation took place in the toilets at the Café Royal, where Bill asked Jimmy if he'd like to join Spurs. And Jimmy said yes. And, of course, it's an absolute miracle. It still irks me that they didn't win the double again, the 61-62 season. They did win the FA Cup. Bill Nicholson's great rival... Alf Ramsey at Ipswich Town took the league title. They failed at the European Cup. There was a controversial, disallowed goal against Benfica. And it was not quite a downhill slope. But you know what I mean? They weren't quite as good as they were the season before. 62-63, of course. Well, it was their last good year. The team was ageing. They became the first English club to win in Europe. They won the European Cup Winners' Cup. But... Danny Blanchflower was very much a middle-aged man by then, and his knee was, you know, the size of a small tax haven. Dave Mackay broke his leg. And, of course, 63-64 was the most dreadful season in Tottenham's history. They lost Mackay, they lost Blanchflower. And in July 1964, of course, John White, who had been their Christian Eriksson, their Luka Modric, he was killed by a lightning strike while playing golf. He'd just been told by Bill Nicholson that he, Bill, was going to build the new team around him. He'd got a pay rise. And, yeah, that was the end of that great side. And they have never, ever, ever achieved such greatness again.
1: That's something I want to throw to Paddy and John. A club that had achieved so much in those three years, 60, 61, 62. How is it possible to have gone the next 60 years with the old FA Cup win, but not much more? They are a major club. They are properly resourced, and yet they've somehow failed to move forward.
0: I think Julie's right. I think the loss of John White and Danny Blanchflower was 35 in 61, so he's already going. And Blanchflower had been the great influence alongside Mackay. Mackay, in later years, of course, did a similar thing at Derby County. He went there, and from being a midfield player, he went to playing in the back four, but was the most influential guy when Derby came up and won the championship the first time. I just wonder whether it was Blanche Flower fading out, along with John White's untimely death that led to them falling away somewhat. Because Nicholson never recaptured that magic that he had during that period, despite having grieves.
3: Yeah, there were various reasons to answer your question directly, Colin. I mean, football wasn't as dynastic then, You know, it was very difficult to establish a monopoly or a duopoly, as you get now, frequently. In fact, it's odd when the title changes hands. When was the last time you had three different title winners in a five-year period? In the era we are talking about, it was unusual to win it twice in a row, as Manchester United did, but it was relatively unusual. So that's the main thing. Most clubs could say, we never recaptured our greatest era. (laughs) That's what makes it the greatest era. But in Spurs' case, I get the impression that Spurs, unlike Arsenal after Wenger in particular, never really behaved like a big club, never really invested in players. Don't forget, and Julie pointed out, that so many of Bill Nicholson's players were bought. That continued to be the case. They paid, I think, a record fee for Martin Chivers to replace Bobby Smith with an interregnum. Then they bought a great player, in my opinion, Alan Gilzean from Dundee. It's a dagger through my heart yeah. as a Dundee supporter. Yeah. And by the way, I just like to add something about the: there were three Scots in the double team because Spurs had bought a great goalkeeper from Dundee, Bill Brown. So they had Brown, Mackay, sounds like a whiskey, and of course the great Johnny White. So do you feel that Spurs should have invested more or were they frightened by... Bill's latter-day spending?
2: I don't think it was that at all. I mean, bearing in mind that although they peaked in the early 60s, 1967, of course, they won the FA Cup. That was sort of Dave Mackay's swan song. The early 70s, although Arsenal stole the double from them in 1971, they won, what was it called then, the UEFA Cup. They won the League Cup. They were known as a very good cup side. But Bill... Correct me if I'm wrong, but managers did seem to stay an awful long time. And if you bear in mind that Bill had been manager in 57, 58, he started as manager. He'd been at Spurs anyway from, from the year dot, something like 1936 as a player. But by 1973, 74, there was a new kind of attitude amongst players. You know, they were getting more money. They were growing their hair long. Bill was very, very old school just a wonderful manager, but he had lost the respect of a number of the players. Maybe he should have gone before then. Yes, Spurs was still a money club, but when we're sort of coming into more modern times. I mean, what really did for Spurs was some disastrous decisions in the early 80s when the club was sold to Irving Scholar. And then it was just a circus after that for a long, long time.
3: But listening to what you were saying, just reminded me of something that really I should have said when Colin asked why Tottenham. I think they've got all Tottenham teams are kind of bound by this obligation to entertain as well as win. You're never going to get them chanting 1-0 to the Tottenham. Arsenal fans wouldn't mind winning at Trishmane. Okay, under the Wenger era, they were a Bill Nicholson team as well. But historically, the Herbert Chapman template was win, win, you know. And Tottenham are saddled with this additional obligation, much like Real Madrid-Barcelona. You might say, well, it hasn't done them much harm. But look at West Ham, who since Greenwood have been saddled with the extra obligation of playing the beautiful game. And I think Tottenham have the same. Every time they lose, you know, some northern pundit says, well, that's Tottenham, pretty but ineffectual. And it must be annoying. But they do, I think they still are expected to be pretty.
2: I've been working with Steve Perryman, who is adorable, on a book. He was telling me about an exchange he once had with Keith Birkinshaw, who was, of course, the second best Spurs manager. And, you know, it was the Spurs way. Hoddle, Ardiles, Villa, and Tony Galvin, the sort of egg and chips player, the plain one who sort of used to supply them and all that sort of stuff. Perryman, kind of the linchpin of the side... They could win Cups, but they couldn't win the title. They were just so inconsistent. And Steve Perryman said to Keith Birkinshaw, why don't we sort of stop being spursy? Why don't we sort of settle for a 1-0 win? In short, you know, why don't we become a bit more arsy? (laughs) And Keith said to him, you wouldn't say that to me if you were sat here behind this desk. So it was the sort of obligation that people felt to play the Spurs way. And the managers were chosen to do that. But, of course, it's all changed. I mean, Pochettino, would you really say he played the Spurs way?
0: If the Spurs way was not winning things, he managed to certainly not <laughs> to win not anything, win didn't he? They, in fact, <laughs> they, they sort of made a habit of actually blowing their opportunities during the Pochettino period. Finals and the league when Leicester won. I personally thought that they were going to come and pippers that year, but they didn't. They blew it and completely fell apart. I don't know about this entertainer bit, it's to do with the mentality. The interesting bit, of course, was that that double side, as you pointed out, they had a lot of players from the north. Bobby Smith was from Doncaster. They had yep. Dave McQuarrie, Bill Brown, the goalkeeper, and so on. But
2: they had some homegrowns as well. I mean, Ron Henry, Peter Baker, they were local. Terry, Well, Terry Dyson was Yorkshire. Yeah.
0: Wasn't he Lancashire? Wasn't
3: he part of that cricketing thing? No, he was a
0: jockey. His father was a jockey. Okay,
3: they're not, <laughs> But up north, they're all the same. Pretty
1: um, yeah, John, when you had dealings with Tottenham Hotspur when Gary came back from Spain, when you go into a club like Tottenham Hotspur, I mean, you're seeing it from such a unique angle. We have no experience of this. You do. What do you feel about different club cultures? And when you went in specifically to Tottenham, what did you feel was different, unique, not necessarily good or bad, about Tottenham Hotspur from your point of view? It was
0: very much a London club. The manager was Terry Venables, who was as cockney as they come for somebody from Dagna. Irving was obviously a London boy. I liked Irving. Irving was very funny. The problem was that Irving, I don't think, was a very good businessman. Irving was one of those people who was good at one thing. He made an enormous property development when he was resident in Monte Carlo. So he made it without capital gains. He teamed up with this guy, Bob Roth, and they got this idea of buying spurs on the cheap there were a lot of shareholders who had two or three shares and they ran around and offered them 20 quid for a share that they thought was worth nothing, picked up a load of shares that way and forced the ownership, which was in the Whale family, had been there for years and years and years out. Irving took over and Irving was a real fan. You met Irving, he was carrying six newspapers under his arm. He was actually rattling good company, but he wasn't a very good businessman. And he ran out of money fairly quickly. A few weeks after Gary had signed, they were meant to make some payments. He signed Gary for the clothing brand as well, which was a separate contract. And they hadn't paid up two payments. And I rang Irving up and I said, listen, Irving, I'm very sorry, but I'm going to have to issue a winding up order, which I said would be a bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? And Irving down the phone said to me, I don't blame you and laughed. <laughs> they did pay up later that day. But Irving was a pretty hopeless businessman, to be honest, and never had any success anywhere else. Julie, over the years, has the
1: culture changed? Your knowledge of Spurs and your experience of Spurs over the years, the team's changed, the manager's changed. Has the culture changed?
2: I think that football in general, the culture has changed enormously. Certainly it was very, very different 10 years ago when, you know, a Spurs fan was a Spurs fan of whatever age. Now, you know, you get fans on social media who probably never go to White Hart Lane. I don't sort of meet fans now who have been going to the game. And I think that's probably common across football. Fans don't go to the game. It's a television programme for them and they, you know, battle it out on social media. And with Conte, I think there is a change in Spurs culture. They're partly becoming like Real Madrid in terms of the late winners. If you think back on Real's Champions League campaign last year, you know, they got through by a late goal almost in every single round. So late winners has become a characteristic for Spurs, which is wonderful because it shows they've got kind of guts and resilience and they try. You know, they're not just nicey-nicey anymore. And they don't play the Spurs way. It's much more like playing the Jose way. I was horrified when Jose Mourinho arrived at Spurs because I thought Spurs went with Jose Mourinho like, I don't know, liver and creme de morse. They were just completely the opposites. Of that. But pff, he got some results. And your feelings
1: about Lord Sugar and what he did to the club, was it positive or negative?
2: <sighs> Hard to say. He definitely kind of saved the club. I mean, I've not met him personally. So I have no idea whether he is the man he's made out to be by a lot. But a friend of mine who's a female journo says he is the rudest man she's ever met. I think it's almost well known that he bought spurs because he just started making satellite dishes and the Premier League was about to launch and he could see what was going on. And John, you say Irving Scholar was not a great businessman. I think that Alan Sugar has always been a great businessman and that's why he bought Spurs. Well, he
0: was a man of utterly no humour. My favourite story about him was in Gary's last game before he went to Japan. They were forced to sell Gary because at that stage they'd run out of money and so on and so on. And in his last game, I was with Venables and Sugar before the game. Venables said, this is his last home game. I wonder how he's going to react. So I said, well, we've discussed it. He's going to kick a few people and get sent off, which that wasn't going to happen, was it? I mean, really, anybody with any knowledge. And Sugar looked at me and said, no, no, he mustn't do that. He mustn't do that. The Japanese (laughs) wouldn't like that. Well, it's funny you should say that because I was once in his company. It was in a
3: group, and I'll never forget this. He wasn't particularly rude. He was always on the edge of boorishness like a lot of these people. But the thing I can remember is that I think it might have been an all-male group, and they started telling jokes. I was absolutely crapping myself because I just can't A, remember, or B, I always miss out an ingredient you know, in the joke and people are completely dumbfounded. But he told the joke expertly, brilliantly, but without a shred of humour. I don't Mm. think he understood the joke he was telling
0: so well. No, he would remember it, but he wouldn't understand why it was funny.
1: (laughs) Well, listen, Julie, I think we ought to start bringing this discussion to a close. I don't want to go... However, without asking you, just to reminisce and and to tell us what that double team meant to you then and means to you now and the love that you had for them then, how it survived over the years.
2: It was the knowledge that something impossible could be done. I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing in a way because, of course, you you spend the rest of your life trying to do what you're told is impossible and usually it can't be done. But I love the whole story of how Bill built that side. I loved the players that I met afterwards. I met Ron Henry, the fullback. I mean, you know, we're talking something like 2007. Finally, finally, I met Ron Henry. And I was a little girl again. I kept jumping up and kissing his cheek. I loved him <laughs> so much. Gosh, he, he was a handsome devil, though. Goodness me.
3: <laughs>
2: I love the whole story of that side. And those four years from, let's say, 1960 to 1964, the great players, the tragedy, it's a terribly satisfying narrative, really.
1: There were 11 players who pretty much... I mean, in those days, every team had the team, and they scanned perfectly. There was a rhythm... You can't do it with a squad of 25, but you can in the, the old WM formation. You can do it. Brown, Baker, Henry, Blanchflower, Norman Mackay, James Jones, White, Smith, Smith. Alan Dyson. It just rolls off the tongue. There were actually three very good, and I can't remember the one, very good reserves who came in. There was Tony, Tony Markey, Markey.
2: Terry Medwin, who played sometimes. Medwin, Markey, and... Jake S- Yeah, And I think by 62, you see there was John Smith. Yeah. But yeah, four players played every single match which shows in terms of fitness, they didn't have crucial injuries in that 60-61 season. But, you know, even the reserves were very good players. I think Frank Saul ended up being swapped with Martin Chivers. He went to Southampton. Bill was very good at uh, the whole thing about him. He he was a bit like an engineer building an aeroplane. He knew which component ought to go in where. And I think that was his strength more than anything else. I don't think he was tactically as sophisticated as Alf Ramsey.
3: Yes, Alf was tactically brilliant, but Bill was a purist. And I suppose when we talk about the Tottenham Way, we're talking about what Bill learned from Arthur Rowe and passed on. And Bill had a fervent, almost quasi-religious belief and of course, Danny Blanchard put it into words lyrically in the absolute obligation of the footballer to entertain the people who in those days had worked five and a half days a week in order to pay their wages. Matt Busby believed that. Bill believed it as fervently right. as That's
1: any right. person. They were a in great Britain. side, Julie. I mean, I always feel that although you only had that one great season, I felt about as I felt about the 1968 Manchester City side somehow winning 16 trophies in the last four years means less to me than winning that one trophy in 1968, partly because of the age I was. And the same applies to you, I would imagine, that that double side stays in your mind because it was unique and it was the only one for years and years to come.
2: I think there are some clubs who've just got one great thing, you know, one miracle thing in them. And it means that everything else, good or bad, doesn't matter. I mean, you look at the Leicester City fairy tale title, for instance. I see
1: John's eyes suddenly. <laughs> <changed>. <laughs> Even my
0: dogs have started barking in the background.
1: <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to say thank you very much to John Holmes, thank you very much to Paddy Barclay, but above all, thank you very much to Julie Welch for sharing with us those memories of the great double side of 1960-61, and to be talking about the great love of her life, Tottenham Hotspur FC. So for everybody, from Paddy, from John, from Julie, from me, Colin Schindler, until the next time, thank you so much for listening to Football Ruin My Life. See you next time.
0: The best bet I loved was when Julie mentioned Leicester winning the league and my dogs all barked. I thought that was brilliant.
1: (laughs) I didn't tell them to,
0: but it was brilliant.
1: (laughs) You can let us know what you think about Football Ruin My Life by emailing us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.